You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this week's episode, we chat with the skip of the new World Men's Curling Championship team. We then recap the 2023 Men's World Championship with someone who called the action live from Ottawa. And then we catch up with an old friend of the podcast who recently added two experienced players to her team for next season. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. My first guest this week is Bruce Mowat, who led his team to a world championship title in Ottawa last week, a first world men's championship for the team and for Scotland since Curling Canada's new director of high performance, David Murdoch, led his team to the championship back in 2009. So, Bruce, I apologize in advance if this is the 57th time that you answered this question in the last couple of days, uh, but how does it feel to have won your first Men's World Curling Championship? Yeah, it feels amazing. Uh, just winning it in Canada in front of, uh, against Canada as well, in front of a Canadian crowd, and like you guys know how to throw curling events, so it was really cool for us, and um, the boys and I just absolutely loved the crowd and the atmosphere that was created so yeah it was great. Now Bruce I realize that you and the team are still relatively young and have many years left in your curling careers that said given all the success you've had in curling already were you starting to feel a little anxious about getting over the hump and winning your first world championship? Uh, Yeah I suppose there was Um, there's always kind of that doubt that you might never even get back to a, a world final. So like you try and take the opportunities when they come. And um, in 2021, I felt like we had a really good game in the final, but we just um, had too many misses in the ninth end. And that's kind of what lost us it. And yeah, trying to battle back to a world final is, is so hard. So uh, I was always kind of wondering if we were ever going to get the opportunity to play again. And, uh, the week that we had there, it didn't go to plan uh, the entire week. So, yeah, it felt like a bit of a battle. And then we managed to to get past the Italians in the semi. And we definitely took this opportunity with both hands and uh, ran with it, really. Tell me about winning the Worlds with your uh, three mates, uh, Bruce. Uh, the four of you have been together for six seasons now and have been through all the ups and downs together. It must have been uh, sweet to win the first men's Worlds of your career with them by your side. Yeah, it's been really special. Like when we first created the team, we said that we wanted to win the Olympics. Um, and we had the the kind of vision of four years and we got to the Olympics. We even got to the, the Olympic final and uh, that kind of goal never really came true. So we reassessed what we want to do. And then we obviously said to each other that we want to go for another cycle and um what's the big thing that you want to do the year after the Olympics? And it's obviously to win the world. So we created that goal quite early on. And um, just knowing that I had those three in front of me to play all the, all the shots and to sweep all mine. um, You know, it's, it just fills me with confidence every time I'm sitting in the hack or every time I'm uh, holding the brush for them. Like it's just so much fun to play with them and they know um, so much about the game and uh, they make my life so much easier than it probably uh, needs to be, I guess. But yeah, it's just uh, 
totally honored to be on the ice with those guys. There was a fairly large uh, Scottish uh, contingent in Ottawa supporting your team. Bruce, I know your partner was there. Family members were there. We saw Hammy uh, McMillan Sr. in the crowd. It must have been nice to share such a big milestone in your young career with such a large group of supporters from home. Well, yeah, we obviously missed them over the last kind of three years or two years even. Like we, we really wanted to get back to an event where they were able to come and support us. And uh, obviously a, a world championship in Canada is pretty exciting and uh, not only for the, the players but for the spectators so uh, a lot of our family and friends decided to um, make that trip over um, and I, I don't know the final number but someone was saying it was above 40 of them traveled out um, so it was obviously great to be uh, in the arena and playing in front of a massive crowd but to have those kind of 40 plus people of Scottish fans um, to play in front of that was the best part of the week for me it was just uh, so much fun to have them back and they were um, trying to chant against, what, 5,000, maybe even more uh, Canadian fans. So, uh, yeah, they had their work set out for them as well. Bruce, uh, you just mentioned the large crowd in Ottawa. We often hear players from other countries talk about how much fun it is to play in Canada in front of thousands of fans. I think in Canada we get... I spoil a little bit. Uh, the better teams play in front of large crowds at the Skies and the Briarage season and also our Olympic trials uh, where there are tens of thousands of people. Well, not tens of thousands, but, you know, eight to 10 to 12 to 15,000 people uh, in the crowd. And uh, when I speak to players from other countries who typically play their national championship, sometimes in front of 100 or 200 uh, people, uh, they are amazed and energized by playing in front of the large crowds in Canada. Can you put into your own words what it was like in your first real experience playing in a world championship in front of a large crowd in Canada? Well, yeah, it's it's so hard to describe what that uh, feeling was like because we hadn't experienced anything like that before. And like the slams that we've played in have crowds, but they're never close to that size. And uh, we always watch the Briar and the Scottish and we see the crowds and the atmosphere that are created. So we, that's the only experience that I could say I have, I guess, is just seeing it, not being a part of it. Um, But throughout the week, it was just so much fun. It was literally the game against Canada in the round robin. That was, um, it was great to hear all the Canadians uh, chant Canada and then Scotland would chant Scotland. And yeah, it was just incredible, the the noise levels that were coming. And yeah, it was just so much fun. Um, definitely an experience that I'm going to uh, remember for the rest of my life. And uh, obviously because of the world title, but just literally the, the atmosphere. Um, I don't think I'll ever really experience anything quite like that again. Now, in the 10th end of your semifinal against uh, Italy, when your last rock came to rest, did you think their only shot was a draw for two to tie the game? Or did you have a bit of a holy shit moment when you saw that the split was there for a possible three? <laughs> of course, we had that moment. <laughs> it was like, uh, um, I never really expected me myself to take the double on my own, I guess. I knew I had to hit the shot really thin to get it over the face, but I always just thought I would either like stick it on one and he would have a draw for two or something like that. So when everything came to rest and then he was playing the split, I was panicking. Um, I really thought that he was going to make that. And then obviously it went down to a measure, so it prolonged the the panic and it wasn't a great situation to be a part of. But when the measure obviously didn't go their way and it went our way, that, you know, I had to kind of quickly set myself 
back into game mode and um, make sure that we make all our shots and that extra to to get into the world final. So yeah, it was oh, had yeah crazy experience, but um, glad that we got through it. I'm always intrigued, Bruce, on how athletes work their way through the emotional ebbs and flows in important games. How did you go about regaining that focus after the measurement versus Italy when you now had to get back in game mode, as you put it, to ensure that you could score in the extra to qualify for the final? Well, I think we just said to um, try and open up the forefoot as quickly as possible and uh, give me a draw. I didn't really mind what turn it was on, so we were happy just to peel Um as early as we could and obviously they didn't get their their stone onto that center line which is very important in those extra ends so it kind of gave us a wee bit more breathing room and ended up having uh the eight foot i think it was in the end so but yeah it was obviously hard to reset but then when we realized that uh we had the opportunity to take it kind of made us relax a wee bit more into the game uh, and or into the extra I guess so yeah it, it all kind of happened so quickly it's hard to remember what happened really but um, that's the the kind of initial reactions I was having. Moving on to the final now, Bruce, there is an old adage in sport that says that visiting teams want to get off to a quick start in games to take the energy out of the home crowd. How important was that deuce in the second end, not only to help with your confidence, but also in quieting the pro-Canadian crowd in Ottawa? Yeah, I think it was very important. I think Brad called the game to make sure that he didn't give us the lead. Um he, he threw double centers in both the first and second end. So, um, yeah, that's the game that they obviously, or the approach, the strategy approach that they took uh, forward is to probably the same in the semi final. Like they got a head start on the Swiss uh, with the steal. So that's the exact same thing. They didn't want to give us the lead. So when we made that shot for two uh, in the second end uh, to get the, the jump on them, uh, it was a huge turning point, I think. And that's potentially what won us the world championship. The game certainly took a turn in your favor, Bruce, in the third end when Brad Gushu, arguably one of the better players in the world on draws, threw one a few feet heavy, turning what would have been a 2-1 to lead for you guys into a 4 nothing lead. Now, I'm sure you were surprised that Brad missed the shot, but I'm guessing you had attempted to force him into a bit of a different path for that last shot. The thing that we were trying to do with my last is like to stick it on the nose of it, so he had to make the uh, draw on a wider path than... Uh, what he had just played so we knew that he had the the like he drew the first one top four and he was basically going to have the same draw but I mean it just shows you like the world final is it just adds so much more pressure to things and um, as you said like Brad's one of the best drawers the game's had so um, to see the the stone go back eight it was obviously a a bit of a shock to uh, all the fans but a shock to us as well but definitely something that um, we were relieved at to give us the 4-0 uh, advantage early on. Now, typically in a world final, uh, you have to stay focused throughout, but I'm curious if taking the early 4-0 lead perhaps gave you a chance to soak in the moment and the atmosphere in a little more than you would have had you been involved in a very tight game the whole way, uh, Bruce? Uh, yeah, I definitely was trying to enjoy myself. Um, it's pretty important to stay focused in those games especially, but... Uh, there was so much happening around us, like the the MC was doing things with um, fans in the stands uh, during the breaks, and I think it was maybe after the second end, 
I was just watching the television, watching like the big screen um, and seeing what they were doing with the the fans and in the stands. And uh, the boys had to call me to to get me to hold the brush for Hammy because I was like too engrossed in what was going on in the stands. So, Bruce, I think it's fair to say that every young curler dreams of ending a world championship final by making a tough double takeout or a draw to the forefoot for the win. There was a little bit less drama in your case in Ottawa. That said, what first went through your mind when you realized you had won your first world men's championship? Um, what did happen? <laughs> so it was obviously like when um, Brad's last one in the eighth end came to rest, I knew that we had the the shot to win the the worlds, I guess. I guess that is my shot to win the world. So um when we made that and then they started shaking hands, like I just couldn't really believe it. I obviously all four of us went a bit crazy in the ice and um it's always nice to have those moments, but it was extra special just in front of our friends and family. Uh we wanted them to to run onto the ice as well to celebrate with us and eventually we managed to after all the ceremonies and stuff. And yeah, it was just such a great um moment for us and for our families to be able to share us uh, share that moment and it's definitely gonna like we got a lot of photos as you can imagine but um it's definitely just gonna live in my memory for forever you and the boys did not get much time to celebrate your big world championship title victory in ottawa bruce uh, you and i are speaking on tuesday afternoon less than 48 hours after that big win in ottawa and you've already played your first game at the players championship an event where you are uh, the two-time reigning champions as we speak you've lost your first game of the event to joel retornas how tough was it to get back on the ice and compete at a major event like the players Less than 48 hours after winning the biggest title of your lives. Yeah, it was um, quite a quick turnaround anyway. And uh, we just traveled to Toronto yesterday from Ottawa. I know it's not that far, but um, we're all very tired. Uh, And I'm sure the Italians are as well. But um, yeah, we just weren't as sharp as we were hoping to be. And I guess that's to be expected after uh, winning a, a world championship. So we'll try and sharpen up for the end of the week and hopefully we can scrape into the playoffs and uh, see if we can create some more magic. And finally, Bruce, uh, before we started recording, I promised you that I would ask you at least one question that you have not been asked in all the interviews you've done since winning the world championship a couple of days ago. So here goes. What Scottish golf course would you suggest people play when visiting your country and you can't answer St. Andrews? Uh, let's go with Carnoustie because I went to the Open to watch in, oh, I don't even know what year it was. It was when I was quite young, so Carnoustie is a good one. Um, I really like Carnoustie, but if you want uh, a less kind of expensive one, then Boat of Garten is where I play with my dad. It's in the Highlands and it's very scenic. It's pretty narrow, so you have to be either using your irons off the tee or be really confident with your driver. So one of those ones. My second guest this week is 1998 silver medalist Mike Harris, who was in Ottawa last week calling some of the action for the World Curling Federation. Mike joined me to share his thoughts on what was a terrific week of curling in Ottawa. Mike, you were in Ottawa calling some of the action from the Men's Worlds for the World Curling Federation, and I wanted to start by asking you for your thoughts on Team Mowat getting over that hump and winning their first World Championship after knocking at the door for a few seasons. Yeah, well, full credit, I think. Um, no one... No one that follows uh, men's competitive curling 
doesn't think they would have broken through at some point. And you know, until you actually do it, though, you never know, right? So, um, you know, Team Dean was in the way, and 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 obviously Gushu was in the way, and and as it turns out, Returnas was a millimeter from beating them. So, um, yeah, I know it's it's hard, right? So, uh, but you know, full full kudos to them. They played they played really well all week. Um, they lost a couple of games early. Uh, lost to Italy uh, during the round robin. They're actually probably the one surprise, but. Otherwise, they played they played really well, and and um, yeah, no, it, it was it was a great uh, great for them to break through. And I don't know if if, if uh, no one's surprised about it, right? They're they're that good, so I think uh, well deserved. And and you know what, they curled ninety six or something in the final, so a tough team to beat when uh, when no one misses a shot. As for Canada's team, Gushu, uh, Mike, it was an up-and-down week for them, uh, but they certainly stepped up late in the week, uh, defeating Team Adin twice and then defeating the Swiss in the semifinal before running into a Scottish team that simply didn't miss very many shots in the final. All in all, how would you rate the week for Team Gushu? Yeah, great week, I thought. I mean, they, they, they like I said, there were there was six teams there that really were much better than the rest. And, and um, you know, whether it's Returnas or whether it's... Uh, Norway, even they lost that one game to Norway that uh, was a bit of a surprise. But uh, for the most part, you know, if you don't have your best game against those five or six teams, all those teams are the players this week, um, you're not going to win. And and um, I thought they did a great job. They said being winning that last round robin game gave them the hammer against the Dean in the, in the playoff game. And, and to do that, beat them twice in a row. Um, you know, Brad still probably thinks he owes him one or two, uh, which wouldn't be too far off. Uh, and then and then they knocked off the Swiss team who were playing so good. Uh, I think it was a great week. Right. And and um, they seem to be peaking at the right time. They played their probably their best two games on on Saturday in beating a Dean and, and, and Schwaller. So uh, there was no reason to think that the final was going to be any different from a performance standpoint. Uh, big, big challenge was not having a hammer against Moet and, uh, you know, really came down to one shot, right? You know, Brad missed that draw. Um, and it just changed the whole dynamic of, of what's, what's going on in the game, you know, two, one or four, nothing, you know, right. That, that, uh, that changed everything. So I think it was a great week. Um, it just shows that it's really, really hard to win, right? That's the, the top six teams, uh, in this particular week. Anyway, we're, we're all playing extremely well. Um, like I said, it was well, uh, Mowat was a millimeter from losing the semifinal with that split attempt from return as in 10. So, you know, it could very easily could have been Italy in the final. So there was really literally, literally a millimeter separating the top teams uh, at any given time. So I think, uh, you know, the expectations of Canadian curling fans are, are, are uh, starting that people are starting to realize how hard it is. Right. I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, team his team played really well when they when it mattered most, and I think that's what he'll take out of it. And I know Brad would be disappointed with the final, as would I. And and you know, it's just it's just really hard um, when you don't have your best uh, in in the final. So, um, but I I've, I think when they look back on it, you know, they 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 won a lot of important games, particularly late in the week, that uh, got them to where they where they did make the final. Is the biggest surprise of the week in Ottawa probably happened late in the week when Team Dean lost to both Canada and Switzerland on the Friday to fall into the qualification round after the round robin and then lost to Canada again. That said, even though the disappointment that they didn't make the playoffs in Ottawa, Mike, I think it's safe to say that Team Adina Sweden just completed one of the all-time stretches of success in men's curling, winning four straight world championships to go along with a gold medal at the Olympics. Uh, 
you know, can you share your thoughts on, on the incredible success that they've had over the last four or five years? I mean, I've never get repeated again, right? I mean, I know there's there's arguments from Canadians that they get to go every year, et cetera, but uh, you can't argue with the fact that, you know, we keep, Canada has been, well, I'll use Brad Gushu as an example. We, Brad Gushu's of those five gold medals, I think Brad has played in four of those events at least. Um, and then, you know, the one he missed was Botcher in the bubble, right? So um, otherwise, you know, it, and and the, the year before that is when Gushu won his gold medal. So he lost the finals, made his one of silver, and then four golds in a row, plus the Olympic gold medal. Um, and Brad was there for most of those. So we've, you know, we've sent the same team every year as well, if arguably other than Botcher that one year. Um so yeah, it's it's just it's just incredibly impressive how how good they have been. They do a very very good job of peaking at the right time. They 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 uh, their preparation always leads to the worlds. I mean that's the big advantage they have is that Canada has to peak at the Briar and then again at the worlds. You know shortly thereafter. So that's something that uh, I think a lot of the competitive athletes, the competitive curlers, are talking about. We talk about all the time with the Olympic uh, trials being too tight to the games, et cetera. So. Um, the theory that the theory that you're um, going in hot <laughs> is good, but it's also you're going in tired as well. So that's that's a little bit of a difference. But you can't under underestimate or under underappreciate what they've done at the world stage. And um, I, I started to notice midweek, um, Nick Dean with his with his knee kind of blowing out earlier in the season. His his he can't get down in the hack the way he used to. I just think that it's just harder on his body when he's sliding. Um, he's coming from a higher position down onto his on, onto his left leg as he comes out, and and maybe it's fatigue late in the week. Um, Oscar also didn't probably have his best uh, best final couple of days either, so um, they they were missing shots they don't normally miss um, uh, uh, late in the week. But you know, they're they're that run will never be repeated. I mean, it's just five major international events in a row. Um, and throw in a few Europeans while you're at it, <laughs> while we're there. Um, you know, just just uh, as far as team accomplishments go, I mean, the most decorated team that we've ever seen. So, um, yeah, I love, I love. They're they're just a joy to watch, and and they really changed the game. The whole run back game um, that's that was started by them. Like they're they're the, they they were the ones that changed the way the games played. So, uh, very impressive. Speaking of Team Adina, Mike, uh, they certainly created a buzz uh, during the round-robin game against uh, Norway where uh, Nicholas Adin made an unbelievable uh, spinner shot in the 10th end, down by two, curling his rock around the guard and basically scoring two to tie the game, only to lose the game uh, in that extra. Uh, some people were calling it a shot that would revolutionize the sport. Uh, Nicholas himself uh, basically called it essentially a fluke, a one-in-a-million shot. Uh, personally, I think it's kind of in the middle. I don't think it will re- revolutionize the sport. I don't see teams trying that shot other than in, in practice very often, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, I also don't think it was a fluke. It was obviously something that uh, Nicholas and his team have practiced. Now, the fact that it nudged the uh, the Norway uh, rock out of the way and stuck around for two points, uh, maybe that was a fluke. Maybe that happens one out of ten times, one out of a hundred times. But the shot itself was something that they had practiced. You were in Ottawa. I believe uh, you were close to the action uh, when the shot was made uh, tell me what you saw and what your thoughts were about it i said i i was in the in the building i was sitting uh right at the far end I, they were on sheet uh, a which uh, it's so they he i was sitting about 10 feet from 15 feet from the hack i guess when he slid out and as he slid out I'm going, okay what's he doing here 
Um, and then he throws the spinner. And uh, as the rock went down, you kind of, oh, okay, I see. I kind of see what he was doing. And then when I made contact and kicked the Norwegian stone out for second shot, and then it was spinning and spinning and spinning. And, and you're wondering if it's going to stop in time and, and eventually did on a measure. Um, I've never stood up and given someone a standing ovation for a shot before. I understand all the other shots. I understand the in-off that Jennifer Jones made to win the Scotties. The, you know, the look at the triple Igle Ransom, the in-off that Sandra Schmerler made, the Al Hackner double, all of these shots I can relate to. I can relate to the the shot, what you're calling, what you're doing. And and so this this was uh, something that no one had ever seen before. I think that's really the big thing. Um, situation wasn't the same in, in that it was to win a, a major championship or anything, but, but to me, it was the best shot. And, and the main reason is that is because the whole team, from the moment they put the broom down to the two sweepers, to Nick sitting in the hack and we're throwing the shot, not one of them even thought it was a joke shot. Not one of them thought this wasn't, they, got, they just put the broom down. And I don't understand Swedish, obviously, but the way they must have talked, I'm going to throw the 55 rotation tap. And all of them were completely engaged. They understood the, the, the assignment. And it was a professional, like they, they obviously, to your point, they have practiced this shot before and they were just better prepared than every other team. <laughs> in my view, that's just kind of how I see it. Like they obviously have done this before. They know what the, the deal was. And that to me was the most impressive part. The shot was a fantastic, takes a little bit of luck, all of those things you mentioned, but the fact they're all were ready to throw it in the 10th end of a world championship was what struck me as, okay, these guys are just, they're just, better prepared than everybody else and maybe better curlers than everybody else. Right. That's kind of, and that's, that's a very subjective thing, obviously, but I just kind of was like, okay, that kind of blew my mind when I thought about it after the fact, yes, it was exciting at the time, but then I was like, well, can, they were completely on, they were completely engaged. They knew exactly what they were doing. It was, it was not a surprise. And that to me was the most impressive part. And, and uh, how many, and then there's, you just, you saw videos of people trying the shot and, Oh, this I did this in practice. I saw a video actually from uh, the Europeans where Totsik uh, tried to draw to the side of the button, similar type of style of shot. So, I mean, the, these guys are practicing these shots. And, and uh, the trick to your point is you're not going to throw that shot to tie the game, right? I'm sorry, to win the game. You're going to take your one and try to steal, right? You're never going to throw that shot in the 10th end. Maybe, but maybe they will one day. Who knows? Maybe they'll actually throw the shot when they're down one trying to get two. Right. Um, you know, I, I just can't imagine you wouldn't just draw the button for your one. But but maybe uh, maybe that day is coming when that, that would be kind of cool, in my in my opinion. Speaking of great shots, uh, Mike, have you ever seen a player in a game as big as a world championship semifinal with some 30 seconds left on the clock, change his mind in the hack and attempt a difficult split for three only to miss it by a millimeter like Joel Retornas of Italy did against Timo? Well, I, th I think what happened was he didn't think he would have that shot for three, right? Because the, the end wasn't looking very promising. And and uh, Bruce actually missed his last shot. And, and instead of drawing for two, the guys, I think, I think uh, uh, whoever was in the house, uh, Mattia Giovanella, he, he just said, hey, let's try the split. And, and they understand the stats of trying to steal. So that when you have a shot to win, you take the shot to win, right? Um, but, yeah, they, they just did it. They these guys are on autopilot, Frank. Like you have to understand, like drawing, throwing the right weight, especially when you got sweepers like uh, like they do with Mozaner and uh, Sebastian Armand. Like you know, they're they're able to just okay, let's just throw this shot with this weight and 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 uh, and make it. And and now they're all completely same thing, completely dialed in. 
And the shot totally made sense once they put the brim. Oh yeah, the shot for three. And then uh, I'm sure Bruce had his heart in his throat. Like I'm, I'm, I can't imagine watching that rock come down, going, "Oh my god!" Oh my, like realizing that maybe he got a little careless on his last, not thinking there would be anything for three. Uh, who knows? But I, I, I can't imagine how they were feeling as they watched that. So I want to move on to the Players' Championship for a few minutes uh, here, Mike. A lot has been made of the fact that the six teams that played on the final weekend at the Worlds in Ottawa are at the Players' this week, the biggest event of the Slam schedule. And those six teams now have to find a way to peak again a few short days after exerting so much mental and physical energy to win a World Championship. The good news is that the trip from Ottawa to Toronto is not a long one, uh, no time zones to go through. But do you think that the teams would prefer to have at least a week to recover between the end of the Worlds and to start play at an event as important and with so much money on the line as the players championship yes it's hard uh, you know i i wouldn't surprise me to see uh mullet miss playoffs wouldn't surprise me to see and it's, and it's happened before where a dean came in, i think he i forget what year it was but he came in after winning and and was totally flat and didn't win a game and um yeah it's difficult for sure and whether whether it's better to wait a week or not wait a week um i think one of the challenges was the the hype around Ottawa was so big and, and, uh, you know, Gushu draws a crowd as you know, and, and, uh, so the, the crowds were massive and, and, and vocal and, and all of that. So yeah, it would be, it'd be hard, um, to, to, to get ready to go. But I think the players, um, also appreciate the fact that they can just kind of go back to back and then they're going to, then they're going to have a break. I know I've chatted with a couple of teams who are staying around for the champions cup. They're, they're, you know, get through this week and then take a, take a break and, um, so I, I think the players will be ready to go. Certainly the women's teams are all going to be excited to be there. Um, you know, like I said, if, if Moet is able to turn around and win his third consecutive players, that would be, that would be a great story too. Um, and there's, and there's lots to play for, right? Like, uh, all of the, the playoff teams, well, return as Gushu, um, uh, Dean all have champions cup money. So if they win this week, it's a hundred and I think it's going to be like a $115,000 payday money on the line and and it's and it's a different schedule there's one game a day for the most part they have one day where they have two games but uh and they're eight ends so um you know they're 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 professionals like literally they're professional curlers so they'll they'll be able to step it up and and get there i think so mike uh, the first year of new cycle always sees a few teams split up and lineup changes happen Uh, however one trend that has many canadian curling fans concerned this time around is that several younger players who had committed to a team to start the cycle are stepping back and taking time away from the sport. Colin Hodgson and Bradley Thiessen, uh, both in their early 30s, announced that they were stepping away, albeit for different reasons. And just a few days ago, we heard that Mackenzie Zacharias, a 2020 World Junior Champion, fresh off an appearance in a Scotty's final, was stepping away to focus on her career and other passions. Should the curling establishment in Canada be concerned that three elite curlers, either in their prime or just starting to reach their full potential, have decided to step away from the sport? Uh, Canadian curling. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I think, I think, uh, um, one of the, one of the, one of the big challenges for our new, uh, high performance director, David Murdoch is going to be getting, um, funding for the younger athletes. I think, uh, particularly front ends now with the way they, the sweeping is you cannot, it's really difficult to be an effective sweeper once you get to, you know, 40, right. I mean, that's, that's, that used to be, you know, back end players, you can argue that, you know, if you, once you get into your thirties or forties, especially skips and you kind of learn the game, but Bruce Mowat learned the game pretty early, didn't he? And then he was, he's been ready to go for a few years now. So um, the way the age, the age, overall age of the high performance athlete, I think is changing a bit. So it, it's a little concerning. More the bigger concern is, is someone like Mackenzie Zacharias, who's, you know, not really even gone through 
other than you know one not not to discount winning the world juniors because that's important but i think if you're if you're going to try to have players engaged with the european teams and the asian teams who are competing full-time at age 19 20 a 16 year old competing for japan this week <laughs> who is pretty good by the way um it's 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 i think canada needs to figure out ways to, to get that they call them next gen curlers they, they, they can't be next gen it has to be this generation like they have to be the ones that are 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 the are the ones ready to go not not kind of throwing your money at the players have been around for for 20 years right so i think that's yeah it's definitely a concern for sure uh, all the other yeah. countries are doing it it's and it's it's becoming a little bit of a younger person's game you know brent lang and jennifer jones and kevin cooey and brad gushu notwithstanding uh, in Canada, it's it's uh, you know the rest of the world is is getting younger and younger and younger, and and they're just as good and just as strong. And just look just look at the just look at the teams, the sweeping of of all these guys, right? Like it's you know they're, you're going to be looking for just really big, strong athletes to 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 be front enders, and and they have to be yeah, it's just getting harder all the time. And finally, Mike, uh, one thing that became very clear in Ottawa is just how much support Brad Gushu and his team get just about anywhere they play in Canada. Sure, any team wearing the Maple Leaf in Ottawa would have been cheered loudly, but there's something different about the level of support that Team Gushu gets from a Canadian audience. Have you ever been able to put your finger on it, Mike, on why Brad and his team seem to be so beloved wherever they go in Canada, whereas other teams do have their fan bases, but not at the level anywhere near close to Brad Gushu and his team? I don't know. I think it's part of it is uh, the appeal the new the Newfoundlanders of, of the of the world. They're they're just uh, generally down to earth, nice folks, right? And and Brad's story when he won with Russ way back in in uh, 2006, you know, as a young kid coming up, like people feel like they they've he's kind of grown up with them. He's been at the Briar every year for 20 years or whatever the number is. So I think people really have a feel like they have a relationship you know, watching him grow and get better all the time and. And now that he's kind of the the best team in the country and certainly the most successful team of late, um, yeah, they're just, they're just everyone's kind of just pleased to to see him continue to play well, right? So um, I think a lot of it is 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 that though that that people have been following him since he was won his world junior championship, right? So um, and then he immediately spurs onto the scene at the Briar and 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 all of that. So he's been around a long time, and and they said had that big breakthrough in '06, and ever since then it's just been like okay, what can you do next? What can you do next? And, you know, and he kind of found his legs in, in at the Briar and that, uh, in St. John's there a few years ago. And, and once he's done that, he's, you know, he's been, he's been the best, certainly the most um, successful team in Canada for the last seven, six, seven years. Um, and I just think people have known him, like feel like they've known him since he was a kid. Right. And I think that, that I think that's pretty cool. My final guest this week is an old friend of the podcast and the only person, aside from me, to ever host an episode. Laurie St. George joined me to discuss her recent lineup change, adding two experienced players to her team. Laurie, you recently announced the addition of two new players to your lineup. At what point did you decide the changes were needed to the team if you were to take that next step in your evolution? I think we kind of knew, like, we knew we needed more experience on the team and you know, have someone who can bring, um, you know, that knowledge to the team. Um, I think it was during the Scotties and after that we really realized that we needed, you know, like a wake-up call kind of thing, that to improve we need to um, ask, like, veterans or, like, people that 
they've experienced playing big games and for the strategy and whatnot and the line calls and plan B's and whatever. So I think it was really during the Scotties that we realized that if we, because at the Scotties, we were really close to make it to the playoff, but not close enough um, for us. And I think we really believe that we have a chance to, to, you know, perform at high level and try to make it to the slam and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think it was really just obvious for us that we needed to reach um, players who has that experience to to bring into the team. And we're just really excited to learn uh, next season with those two players. Speaking of those two new players, uh, Laurie, let's start with Marie-France Laroche, who will be a familiar name to Canadian curling fans, having been to 10 Scotties, I believe, reaching the final once. I'm guessing that Marie-France was one of the players you looked up to growing up as a curler in Quebec. How cool is it that you're now going to be able to call Marie-France one of your teammates? It feels very special, but surreal kind of thing. Um, you know, when I talked to her at first, um, I I wrote to her if we could have a call and whatnot, and then when... When she answered, you know, we, we booked a time. And when I called her, I was literally sweating. I was <laughs> I was so nervous. I was so excited. And I didn't know, like, it, you know, I, I knew what to tell her, but I didn't know, like, how was that going to happen? So, you know, it was a great conversation. Um, it was still really stressful for me because, you know, like you said, I watched her many times playing at the Scotties and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it was just a great conversation. I think we proposed her kind of like a, a nice deal in between coaching and playing. So we really wanted her experience and having a coach who's throwing good rocks and playing with you on the ice can actually, you know, make you win some, some games, you know, um, cause she's going to bring that experience on the ice too. Um, so it's it's very special. I'm really excited. The team is excited. Um, you know, when I proposed her name uh, to the team, um, you know, we kind of didn't know if, like, she was going to answer, like, because she told, like, everyone, like, she was pretty out of the competition for a while and whatnot. Like, she, she thought she was done with it. And when we proposed her that, it was just so nice to have a positive answer like I couldn't believe like I was almost crying I was shaking and it was just you know an amazing feeling and we're just so pumped like I still can't believe that she's gonna hold the room for me when I throw like it's just <laughs> it just feels weird but it's it's an amazing feeling we're excited the other new player to your lineup is Jamie Sinclair, who has experience at the World Championship, where she represented the United States, and she has also played in several slams, winning the Players' Championship back in 2018, I believe. Now, Jamie's back in Canada full-time, for those in our audience who might not be aware. And uh, so, Laurie, tell me a little bit about her addition to your lineup. Yeah, I mean, she's a player that knows exactly what it takes to, to win big events and to win games um, in big events like this. Um, you know, she, she is just an amazing person too. Like when I spared at the Grand Slam, um, with her and Chelsea and Rachel, it was just amazing to just be with her and get to know her and get to know the girls. And she's a really beautiful person. And I liked everything about her when I was playing with her on the ice and whatnot. Um, so yeah, we, we talked a little bit, 
years before kind of thing. Like I played against her a few times uh, when I was junior, but she was in women. Um, so yeah, she knows exactly what it takes to, to win. And I think we, we also needed that someone who's, who knows exactly what it takes. And, you know, we're just so excited and I'm, she's a funny person. Oh my God. I had so many laughs with her and it's good. It's just going to be like a, I'm sure we're all going to glue like so fast because um, we all want to perform. We all excited about playing together next year. Um, but yeah, just to have that experience, because it's a little bit like more recent than um, than Marie-France, but have those two players on the team, it's going to bring so so much learning and we're just exciting to to learn about that and i saw jamie at the world's championship um uh like a week ago and it was just a great moment you know we're talking about curling we're talking about lives and everything so i'm just excited to to you know have that first peel together and just share beautiful moments the one question that many people had when you made your new team announcement, uh, Lori, is what the approach would be with your first, with, pardon me, with your five-person lineup. I realize that things might be easier next season because Jamie still has to wait a, another year before being eligible to play in a Canadian championship, which means that Marie-France will play in the playdowns and at the Scotties if you qualify. But when Jamie is available to play in Canadian Nationals, will she be playing with the team full-time? And if that happens, does that mean that Marie-France takes more of a coaching role with the team um i think we we talked about it a little bit um for sure with marie france like you know um she's a teacher she has kids and whatnot so you know for her it was kind of like a year by year deal kind of thing so i don't think we want to put pressure on anyone at that point uh you know we we're gonna start to just learn about each other and you know uh, have some great times um for sure we we want a long-term relationship with those two players if if it's coaching it's coaching if it's as a player it's has a player you know um but we didn't really like talk about it like officially um but that's the plan to just like for sure keep keep Marie-France around and have Jamie on the team that would be great so, Laurie, I think it's fair to say that your lineup played a relatively, or your team played a relatively light schedule this season. Does the addition of Jamie and Marie-France uh, mean that your team will be playing a busier schedule next season? We actually have a plan of playing, like, <laughs> kind of like eight spiels before playdowns. Um, you know, our goal is to really try to make it to the Grand Slam in the next few years. Um, so, you know, we... We know that we need to play more. I think with the result that we had this past season, it was awful <laughs> before playdowns. Like, it was really awful. So, you know, our ranking was not great, and it's still not great. Uh, but we're looking forward to just play more and to make some points and qualify in events. Um, and with the five uh, women's team, like, it's going to be easier, especially with you know, uh, if Marie-France cannot play, like, so Marie-France and Jamie are, like, probably going to switch third position, like, that's that's the plan, but I'm still open at whatever position, you know, as as long as we have a great team and we're having fun on the ice, like, I, you know, I, I don't really mind about position or whatnot. Um, 
But yeah, we're planning to play a lot for sure. Try to make some points. And Marie France, if she cannot play like a, many tournaments because of you know her teaching and whatnot, and you know um, Jamie is gonna play it all with us. Uh, it still counts for uh, WCT points. So we're looking forward to just you know try to make her best. And um, you know it's gonna be a, probably a jam pack season because also mixed doubles and. Yeah, and we're going to the world, <laughs> um, Emily and I, um, you know, in, in October. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a big season, but we're just looking forward to just improve and to try to make some points and go up in the ranking. So, Lori, uh, you just mentioned something in your last answer that I think a lot of people were wondering. Uh, will you be skipping and throwing last rocks next season, or might uh, we see Marie-France or Jamie call the game while you throw four stones the way that Team Tiranzoni does it out of Switzerland? I have this mentality that I want the best team possible. So if at one point I feel like I need to throw lead or whatever, like I'm I'm that kind of person, you know, I want to win and I want to have fun on the ice. And if the team agree that I need to throw another position or like not call the game or go sweep or whatever, like I'm really open to try things. And I'm actually like I I don't mind sweeping or whatnot. So, um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much my point. That you know, I think right now like the setup is pretty much it. That I'm gonna skip and throw last rock. Marie France and Jamie are gonna switch position as as third. Um, Emily second and Kelly lead. Um, but you know, if I'm one point, like we feel that Marie France or Jamie calls the game better and whatnot, or you know, have Jamie throwing last rock. Like, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's what they want. But, you know, it, I'm always open to have that conversation with them. And finally, Laurie, I know that you're a bit of a curling nerd and think about the sport 12 months a year, basically. So is it fair to say that you're already pumped for the start of next season and to uh, begin this journey with your new teammates? We're pumped. And I can't believe that the season is over. I know everyone is probably tired of, curling and whatever but I when we came back from uh, mixed doubles national I was like the first few days I was like I can't believe I'm not going to practice like it it just seems crazy to me that I'm not going to be on the ice as often because I love it I just enjoy it I enjoy throw some rocks you know um so it's kind of weird to like I had so much time to myself like I didn't know what to do with it (laughs) um but yeah we're just so excited I'm And seriously, the biggest point is I'm so excited to learn. Like, I'm going to just soak it all in and try to make my best and to really keep those tips and information that they they gave me. And I'm going to try to really do my best. And even for the other girls, like, have that much experience on a team for a year. It's just incredible. And we're really excited to just have that first tournament together. But for sure, we're going to have little activities, uh, team bonding, uh, this this summer so i'm looking forward for that too and that does it for this week's episode a huge thank you to bruce mike and Lori for joining me this week also don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the curling podcast network the two girls in the game podcast the rock logic podcast and the curling legends podcast I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.